0: I've noticed that quite often that the families that are most obsessed with presents and with conspicuous consumption, those families are the ones that are most love-starved. It's almost as if the presents and the, the ostentatious celebration become become a substitute actually for real deep love in some families. You notice with children sometimes that um, um, uh, there is this, this urgent longing for presence that goes beyond the natural desire to have, have some, uh, uh, some new toys to play with. It seems to have the overturn of this being a moment when they're reassured their parents do love them. Christmas Carol, you know, is not a story about a man who didn't give presents learning to give them. The major theme is about a man who didn't know what love was learning to love. And in many senses, this church in Corinth that we have been looking at was a love-starved family. You can't read um, this letter to to the Corinthians without realising that there was precious little real love Going on. It's not surprising that Paul devoted a whole chapter to this issue of love amongst them. And we have been unabashed in slowing right down and looking at what the Apostle says. Because to be honest, I have a strong suspicion that our culture is more love starved than many others in this world today or in history. We've got all the gadgets, all the toys, all the wonderful things. We are overwhelmed. Every day is like Christmas in one sense uh, compared with uh, uh, some other people. But, but somehow within our culture there seems to be a starvation at that deeper level so often. So what Corinth needed to learn I suspect we need to learn. And just like today, in many senses, this loved starved community became obsessively interested in gifts, not this time Christmas presents, but actually gifts that God had given them, um, such as speaking in tongues, such as prophecy and other things. Those people who had it, um, used that as their means of sort of exaltation and, and, and uh, self-glorification. Those people who didn't have such gifts looked on with envy. And uh, essentially what Paul is saying is you will better get a better um, perspective on those gifts if you have love at the heart of your community. just like a modern day family will have a better perspective on the gifts of Christmas if actually that family is deeply nourished by mutual love. So in one sense, verses 8 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, deeply appropriate as we approach Christmas. Paul wants to get Gifts in perspective, gifts particularly of knowledge that they were uh, so interested in. These gifts of knowledge and understanding that he uh, uh, speaks about, they, he says, they will cease. They will no longer be of any use to you after a while. They will be like that wonderful little toy that you get on Christmas Day that you've broken by Boxing Day. Prophecy, for instance, he says, uh, where there are prophecies. They will cease in verse, uh, um, in verse 8. By, by prophecy, I think he means... Uh, uh, inspired understanding of our present situation. We'll look at that after Christmas in a little bit more detail where he goes on to talk about it uh, more in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, uh, So I don't want to dwell on it deeply right now. I want you to notice, though, that this gift, this gift of knowledge, these prophecies, they will cease. Tongues, he says, again something we'll look at in 1 Corinthians 14, which seem to be a mysterious, ecstatic utterance, utterances. Tongues will be stilled. They will stop. They will be useless one day, he says. Knowledge, he says, where there is knowledge, that too will pass away. I don't think he means all knowledge, in fact he certainly doesn't mean all knowledge because in verse 12 he's going to delight in the fact that uh, um, knowledge one day will flower into eternal personal knowledge of God. We'll see that uh, in in just a little while. I think he means more um, um, some um, gifts of specific knowledge, secret knowledge in particular that Corinth was so interested in. It would be a wonderful gift to be given some hidden secret knowledge about about God. God God can do that. But one day it will be useless. One day all knowledge will be laid bare. All truth will be laid bare for everybody to see. All these knowledge gifts. Then that you Corinthians are so interested in, he says, prophecies and tongues and words of knowledge, they're all going to come to an end. We could extend that today, perhaps we're not so obsessed by those particular knowledge gifts. I apply it to myself, any gift that I have, For teaching will frankly one day be totally irrelevant. Because as the Bible says, they will all know me from the greatest to the least of them. No longer will someone have to teach his brother saying, know the Lord. No longer will there ever be, be any church services. No longer will there be any theology books. Perhaps um, you have an ability in understanding that it is a great delight to you. Well, that's great for now. But it's not eternal. One day, everyone will know infinitely more than you will ever know. Even those who can barely read. Even those who might be called educationally subnormal. Those who trust Christ, they will be in eternity and they will look back on everybody including you and say what pathetic tiny bit of knowledge you had. We have infinitely more. Paul explains why these knowledge gifts are of such modest value and such temporary value. Our present knowledge, he says in verses uh, nine to eleven, well it's it's so partial. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Some, some, some have uh, suggested that um, um, the coming of perfection is perhaps the uh, coming of the era when the Bible was finally completed and that now we live in the times of perfection because we have a complete Bible. But... Um, uh, frankly, the Bible nowhere describes uh, this period that we live in now as being perfect. No, perfection, the coming of perfection, seems much more naturally in the Bible to apply to. The final return of Christ, the final creation of a new heaven and a new earth that the Bible promises, the, the final resurrection of the saints where they will be perfected now, no longer liable to sin and where, where God's people will populate that new creation now with no sin and no evil and not even any death. That, that, is, that is the perfection that the Bible talks about. And so um, it is, um, uh, this, this passage is not suggesting that, that prophecy and tongues and so on are likely to cease before that final day of perfection. Um, we, there it doesn't seem to be anything in the New Testament as far as I can see that suggests that those gifts have ceased. We should rightly expect all sorts of gifts, miraculous gifts included, to be exercised for the whole of the rest of the church age until Jesus comes. But importantly, we need to understand that whatever gifts we have, particularly gifts of knowledge, they are only partial We only know in part. It's been my great privilege to devote a significant chunk of my time to studying the Bible and I know uh, an enormous amount more than I did uh, 20 years ago when I just started out as a Christian and it nourishes me and excites me and encourages me and hopefully in a modest uh, way has has changed me and developed me and matured me. But I still only know a tiny, tiny part. An infinitesimal part of what one day I will know, and you will know. Uh, I hope... You devote the rest of your life to reading the Bible daily and trying to understand it. To, to belonging to a Bible teaching church that, that stretches you challenges you to understand the Bible more deeply. It is a vital and a central part of what it means to be a Christian. But the Apostle Paul says, all the knowledge that we will ever gain for the whole of our life, even if we devote every ounce of our energy to it, for, for decade upon decade, will be like a child's ABC book compared with what one day we will know. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Well, when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. The implication is, now we are in our childhood. Then, we will put these childish ways behind us. And we will know. supremely we will know God. Our present knowledge then is partial. More than that, he says, it is, it is mediated. Now, he says, verse 12, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Uh, it's not so much that um, uh, a... Uh, uh, a mirror doesn't reflect very well. They were very proud of their mirrors in the, in the first century. It made, they gave a true image. And uh, uh, so we should expect that he ant- anticipates that we get a true image. The point is that it is a mediated image. It's like a photo rather than the real person. It's accurate, but it only says a certain amount. You learn so much more by re- meeting the real person. We see, he says, um, in enigmas, he uses a word that, that, that means riddles or enigmas. Every bit of knowledge of God that we have now, all the key bits, when you start thinking about them, you realise that there are things that just tantalise you, that are beyond our present understanding. The heavens declare the glory of God, says, uh, says the Bible, but the heavens declare it ambiguously in some senses. Jesus reveals the glory of God, but there are so many enigmas about Jesus. How did God become a baby in a woman's womb? What does it mean that God came down to us at Christmas? How did God truly, fully share in our humanity? What did Jesus mean when he said things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the Father of one. Before Abraham was, I am. What does it mean that God revealed his glory supremely in Jesus' death on the cross? I mean, there are so many riddles in that one. The all powerful God becomes powerless to reveal his glory. The, the, the God the Father was separated from God the Son to reveal his glory, and yet God is only one. The all glorious God was shamed on the cross, and that revealed his glory. The, the perfect God was punished for our sin. And that revealed his glory? The author of life died? I get it again. I don't know about you, but I, I find myself seeing things in Scripture which fill me with delight and awe and wonder, but at the same time make me realize that there are deep mysteries that I cannot fathom, things I cannot quite grasp. My knowledge is just mediated, like through a mirror. I'm tantalised by riddles. Quite literally, I think, our present minds cannot understand God. Our present eyes cannot see God. Our present hearts cannot enjoy God as He fully is. For now... We must just see God's receding back as Moses did. Our eyes drop to God's robe as they did for Isaiah. We can only describe the phenomena that surround God as Ezekiel did. We can only see the glory of God in Jesus as the disciples did. We cannot see him face to face. What knowledge we have now grips our hearts and yet it must make us hungry for more. And there is more, says Paul. One day we will see God and Jesus face to face. One day the earth will be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. They will be coextensive. There will be no ambiguities in God's revelation of himself. Just everything will be glorious. One day the glory of God and Jesus will, says Revelation, eclipse the sun in their brightness. One day we will see God in a way that captivates our hearts. Not just for a moment, but forever. And that delight will not wane, you know. We won't have that... Sense and then we're back in the ordinary mundane of this world, uh, things of this world. That delight will immediately surpass the greatest delight we have ever felt in our lives and then continue and more than that will grow as day after day and week after week and year after year and millennium after millennium we simply see the glory of God in more and more and more and more. And more grandeur, and there is never any sin, never any suffering, never any death, never anything at all to in any way darken that extraordinary vision that we are going to be given. Paul, Paul uses phraseology in verse 12 of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, to try to, to help us to, to to get the picture of what he's saying. He says, Now we see but a full reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, he says, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And the words he uses for know changes d- through that verse. The first time he uses the word know, when he speaks of knowing in part, he uses a relatively neutral term about knowing, which we could could translate in 21st century ease as head knowledge. Now I have some head knowledge, a little bit of it. But then he moves to to, to a word that that... Again and again in in the Bible it tends to imply more than head knowledge to personal knowledge knowledge of acquaintance deep knowledge intimate knowledge then I shall know personally even as I am fully known. Do you remember the, the story of Job and all his sufferings and his, uh, and his struggles with God and then God finally speaks to him in, in one of the most extraordinary bits of, of prose about the character of God in the whole of the Bible. If you haven't read it, read the end of Job. It's extraordinary. And Job's response is this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Well, frankly, he's a lucky man because most of us live almost all of our lives simply having heard of him with our ears. But it will not be forever. One day our eyes will see him and we will be astonished. We will be enraptured we will discover a joy that we never knew could exist. God already knows you in that way. I am fully known with personal knowledge, he says. God already sees you in that way. But one day, it will be mutual. One day, what he sees now will be returned by what you see of him. And what will you see? What will we see? Well, there's so much that that one could say about that. But let me pick up the central thing that Paul says here. What we will see is we will see love. All this knowledge that we have now, even the most extraordinary gifts, they're partial and they'll pass away. Because one day the knowledge we have will far exceed any knowledge we have now. And the thing that will stay is love. The thing that will be there forever Is love. Verse 8. Love never fails. He says, "Or, or love will not fall, or love will not cease, or love will not be abolished, or love will never reach its sell by date. Because God is love. To know God is to know love. Because he is eternal, his love is eternal. Because he is unchanging, his love is unchanging. Because he is infinite, his love is infinite. Because he is the source of all things, love flows from him, unbidden by any prior thing. It simply flows out from him to the whole of his creation. And though right now it is marred by all sorts of things that hide it, one day those things will be swept away because of the power of God's love and there will be only love. And that love that flows from God, which begins now and continues on into eternity, that love, as it is experienced by God's creatures, induces love in them. We are like the moon to to God the sun. We are like flowers that grow and flourish in the sunlight and radiate a bit, back, a bit of that, that, that glory back. Romans 5, chapter 5 says, says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by his spirit. And by that he means, I think, both, that God's love uh, enters our hearts when we become believers. And also, that that Godlike love, then, emanates from our hearts. God's love induces, first of all, a love which flows back to him, our, our, the central sort the, um, object of our love is God. That's what it means to become a Christian, to come to love God. That's what it means to, to grow as a Christian to come to love um, God more deeply with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And that's what your final destination will be. That your love for God will, will, will have flourished into its full flowering. And God's love induces love not only to himself but to all his creatures horizontally. We love Sir John because he first loved us. The second commandment Jesus said after love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and strength is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. The two fit together. And one day what we stumblingly and in a terribly poor way do here amongst us that will flourish into unalloyed delight and love for one another. So we must live, says the Apostle, by faith, hope and love. Verse 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I don't think he means that they remain in the sense that they are all eternal. Faith, hope and love. Just doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible. Faith is trusting in God in the absence of the full sight of him. Hebrews 11 verse 1. It's being certain, of, sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. So, in a sense, faith becomes eclipsed like everything else when we see God face to face. And similarly, hope is described in the rest of the Bible in those kinds of terms. Who hopes for what he already has, Paul says in Romans eight Don't hope for something that you have and one day we will have everything that God promises us. So I don't think he means that faith, hope and love are eternal here. I think he's stepping back and he's saying now the way to live now is by faith, hope and love. You're obsessed by gifts, he says to the Corinthians. You're interested in all these wonderful gifts of knowledge and esoteric things that you've got. You might say to Magdalene Road, I don't know what he'd say to us, you're obsessed by so many other things that are really not of great interest. You're looking forward to your presence on Christmas Day with undue attention. because this is what it means to live as a Christian. You live by faith, simply trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the whole of your life. You live in hope, a sure and certain hope that he who did not spare his only son will certainly give us all things, as Paul says most importantly, the greatest of these three, because it's eternal and because it's the essence of the transformation that God wants to see in you. Most importantly, you live in love. What you manage to do today and in your life in terms of loving other people That will be a taste of your eternal destiny. Infinitely to be savoured. Even though one day it will grow and grow and be far greater. What you experience in terms of your love for God now is eternal. What you taste today, you will feast on in eternity. So, why worry about all those other things? Why behave like love starved children? Why not live as God calls you to live? Live in love. I know we'll stumble again and again. I know we will find it really hard. But that is the essence of what God calls you to. And why not let everything else in your whole life simply become the, the background, not quite the irrelevancies, but not the centrepiece either. And why not put love for God right at the heart of your whole existence? Because as you devote yourself to that and as you get little tastes and catch little glimpses, partial and mediated though those things are, as you find love for God rising up in your heart and you know you are beginning to taste eternity. What more could any of us want? This Christmas, this New Year period, it's a great time to review life, isn't it? Why not? ask yourself that question. What is the centre of my life?